Section thirty five of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four by James Boswell, Section thirty five. From the subject of death, we pass to discourse of life whether it was upon the whole more happy or miserable johnson was decidedly for the balance of misery in confirmation of which i maintained that no man would choose to lead over again the life which he had experienced footnote the reverend mr ralph churton fellow of brazen nose college oxford has favoured me with the following remarks on my work which he is pleased to say i have hitherto extolled and cordially approve the chief part of what i have to observe is contained in the following transcript from a letter to a friend which with his concurrence i copied for this purpose and whatever may be the merit or justness of the remarks you may be sure that being written to a most intimate friend without any intention that they ever should go further they are the genuine and undisguised sentiments of the writer january the sixth seventeen ninety two last week i was reading the second volume of boswell's johnson with increasing esteem for the worthy author and increasing veneration of the wonderful and excellent man who is the subject of it the writer throws in now and then very properly some serious religious reflections but there is one remark in my mind an obvious and just one which i think he has not made that johnson's morbid melancholy and constitutional infirmities were intended by providence like st paul's thorn in the flesh to check intellectual conceit and arrogance which the consciousness of his extraordinary talents awake as he was to the voice of praise might otherwise have generated in a very culpable degree another observation strikes me that in consequence of the same natural indisposition and habitual sickliness for he says he scarcely passed one day without pain after his twentieth year he considered and represented human life as a scene of much greater misery than is generally experienced there may be persons bowed down with affliction all their days and there are those no doubt whose iniquities rob them of rest but neither calamities nor crimes i hope and believe do so much and so generally abound as to justify the dark picture of life which johnson's imagination designed and his strong pencil delineated this i am sure the colouring is far too gloomy for what i have experienced though as far as i can remember i have had more sickness i do not say more severe but only more in quantity than falls to the lot of most people but then daily debility and occasional sickness were far overbalanced by intervenient days and perhaps weeks void of pain and overflowing with comfort 
so that in short to return to the subject human life as far as i can perceive from experience or observation is not that state of constant wretchedness which johnson always insisted it was which misrepresentation for such it surely is his biographer has not corrected i suppose because unhappily he has himself a large portion of melancholy in his constitution and fancied the portrait a faithful copy of life the learned writer then proceeds thus in his letter to me i have conversed with some sensible men on this subject who all seem to entertain the same sentiments respecting life with those which are expressed or implied in the foregoing paragraph it might be added that as the representation here spoken of appears not consistent with fact and experience so neither does it seem to be countenanced by scripture there is perhaps no part of the sacred volume which at first sight promises so much to lend its sanction to these dark and desponding notions as the book of ecclesiastes which so often and so emphatically proclaims the vanity of things sublunary but the design of this whole book as it has been justly observed is not to put us out of conceit with life but to cure our vain expectations of a complete and perfect happiness in this world to convince us that there is no such thing to be found in mere external enjoyments and to teach us to seek for happiness in the practice of virtue in the knowledge and love of god and in the hopes of a better life for this is the application of all let us hear etc not only his duty but his happiness too for god etc the new testament tells us indeed and most truly that sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof and therefore wisely forbids us to increase our burden by forebodings of sorrows but i think it nowhere says that even our ordinary afflictions are not consistent with a very considerable degree of positive comfort and satisfaction and accordingly one whose sufferings as well as merits were conspicuous assures us that in proportion as the sufferings of christ abounded in them so their consolation also abounded by christ it is needless to cite as indeed it will be endless even to refer to the multitude of passages in both testaments holding out in the strongest language promises of blessings even in this world to the faithful servants of god i will only refer to st luke chapter eighteen verses twenty nine and thirty and first timothy chapter four verse eight upon the whole setting aside instances of great and lasting bodily pain of minds peculiarly oppressed by melancholy and of severe temporal calamities from which extraordinary cases we surely should not form our estimate of the general tenor and complexion of life excluding these from the account i am convinced that as well the gracious constitution of things which providence has ordained as the declarations of scripture and the actual experience of individuals authorize the sincere christian to hope that his humble and constant endeavours to perform his duty chequered as the best life is with many failings will be crowned with a greater degree of present peace 
serenity and comfort than he could reasonably permit himself to expect if he measured his views and judged of life from the opinion of dr johnson often and energetically expressed in the memoirs of him without any animadversion or censure by his ingenious biographer if he himself upon reviewing the subject shall see the matter in this light he will in an octavo edition which is eagerly expected make such additional remarks or correction as he shall judge fit lest the impressions which these discouraging passages may leave on the reader's mind should in any degree hinder what otherwise the whole spirit and energy of the work tends and i hope successfully to promote pure morality and true religion though i have in some degree obviated any reflections against my illustrious friend's dark views of life when considering in the course of this work his rambler and his rasselas i am obliged to mr churton for complying with my request of his permission to insert his remarks being conscious of the weight of what he judiciously suggests as to the melancholy in my own constitution his more pleasing views of life i hope are just valiant quantum valere possunt mr churton concludes his letter to me in these words once and only once i had the satisfaction of seeing your illustrious friend and as i feel a particular regard for all whom he distinguished with his esteem and friendship so i derive much pleasure from reflecting that i once beheld though but transiently near our college gate one whose works will for ever delight and improve the world who was a sincere and zealous son of the church of england an honour to his country and an ornament to human nature his letter was accompanied with a present from himself of his sermons at the bampton lecture and from his friend dr townson the venerable rector of malpas in cheshire of his discourses on the gospels together with the following extract of a letter from that excellent person who is now gone to receive the reward of his neighbours mr boswell is not only very entertaining in his works but they are so replete with moral and religious sentiments without an instance as far as i know of a contrary tendency that i cannot help having a great esteem for him and if you think such a trifle as a copy of the discourses externo autoris would be acceptable to him i shall be happy to give him this small testimony of my regard such spontaneous testimonies of approbation from such men without any personal acquaintance with me are truly valuable and encouraging boswell End of footnote. Reader's note, repeat of the sentence preceding that long footnote. Johnson was decidedly for the balance of misery, in confirmation of which I maintained that no man would choose to lead over again the life which he had experienced. Johnson acceded to that opinion in the strongest terms. Footnote se plaint tout gémit en cherchant le bien-être nul ne voudrait mourir nul ne voudrait renaître 
Voltaire, Le Désastre de Lisbonne. Johnson said that for his part he never passed that week in his life which he would wish to repeat were an angel to make the proposal to him. Yet Dr. Franklin, whose life overlapped Johnson's at both ends, said, I should have no objection to go over the same life from its beginning to the end, requesting only the advantage authors have of correcting in a second edition the faults of its first. So would I also wish to change some incidents of it for others more favourable. Notwithstanding, if this condition was denied, I should still accept the offer of recommencing the same life. End of footnote. This is an inquiry often made, and its being a subject of disquisition is a proof that much misery presses upon human feelings. For those who were conscious of a felicity of existence would never hesitate to accept of a repetition of it. I have met with very few who would. I have heard Mr. Burke make use of a very ingenious and plausible argument on this subject, Every man, said he, would lead his life over again, for every man is willing to go on and take an addition to his life, which, as he grows older, he has no reason to think will be better, or even so good as what has preceded. I imagine, however, the truth is that there is a deceitful hope that the next part of life will be free from the pains and anxieties and sorrows which we have already felt. Footnote. Mackintosh thus sums up this question. The truth is that endless fallacies must arise from the attempt to appreciate by retrospect human life, of which the enjoyments depend on hope. End of footnote. We are, for wise purposes, condemned to hope's delusive mind as Johnson finely says, and I may also quote the celebrated lines of Dryden, equally philosophical and poetical. When I consider life, tis all a cheat, yet fooled with hope, men favour the deceit, trust on, and think tomorrow will repay. Tomorrow's falser than the former day, lies worse and while it says we shall be blessed with some new joys cuts off what we possessed strange cousinage none would live past years again yet all hope pleasure in what yet remain and from the dregs of life think to receive what the first sprightly running could not give It was observed to Dr. Johnson that it seems strange that he, who has so often delighted his company by his lively and brilliant conversation, should say he was miserable. Johnson. Alas, it is all outside. I may be cracking my joke and cursing the sun. Footnote. Johnson, speaking of the companions of his college days, said, it was bitterness, which they mistook for frolic. End of footnote. 
son how i hate thy beams i knew not well what to think of this declaration whether to hold it as a genuine picture of his mind or as the effect of his persuading himself contrary to fact that the position which he had assumed as to human unhappiness was true Footnote. yet there is no doubt that a man may appear very gay in company who is sad at heart his merriment is like the sound of drums and trumpets in a battle to drown the groans of the wounded and dying boswell end of footnote we may apply to him a sentence in mr greville's maxims characters and reflections a book which is entitled to much more praise than it has received footnote madame d'arblay tells how johnson was one day invited to her father's house at the request of mr greville the finest gentleman about town as she earlier described him who desired to make his acquaintance this superb gentleman was afraid to begin to speak assuming his most supercilious air of distant superiority he planted himself immovable as a noble statue upon the hearth as if a stranger to the whole set johnson who never spoke till he was spoken to this habit the burneys did not as yet know became completely absorbed in silent rumination very unexpectedly however he showed himself alive to what surrounded him by one of those singular starts of vision that made him seem at times though purblind to things in common gifted with an eye of instinct for espying any action that he thought merited reprehension for all at once looking fixedly on mr greville who without much self-denial the night being very cold kept his station before the chimney-piece he exclaimed if it were not for depriving the ladies of the fire i should like to stand upon the hearth myself a smile gleamed upon every face at this pointed speech mr greville tried to smile himself though faintly and scoffingly he tried also to hold his post and though for two or three minutes he disdained to move the awkwardness of a general pause impelled him ere long to glide back to his chair but he rang the bell with force as he passed it to order his carriage End of footnote. aristarchus is charming how full of knowledge of sense of sentiment you get him with difficulty to your supper and after having delighted everybody and himself for a few hours he is obliged to return home he is finishing his treatise to prove that unhappiness is the portion of man Footnote. on this same day miss adams wrote to a friend dr johnson though not in good health is in general very talkative and infinitely agreeable and entertaining End of footnote. on sunday june the thirteenth our philosopher was calm at breakfast there was something exceedingly pleasing in our leading a college life without restraint and with superior elegance in consequence of our living in the master's house and having the company of ladies 
Mrs. Kennicott related, in his presence, a lively saying of Dr. Johnson to Miss Hannah Moore, who had expressed a wonder that the poet who had written Paradise Lost should write such poor sonnets. Milton, madam, was a genius that could cut a colossus from a rock, but could not carve heads upon cherry stones. Footnote. Johnson said Milton was a phidias, etc. In his life of Milton, he writes, Milton never learnt the art of doing little things with grace. He overlooked the milder excellence of suavity and softness. He was a lion that had no skill in dandling the kid. Sporting the lion ramped and in his paw dandled the kid. Paradise Lost, Book 4, Line 343, End of we talked of the casuistical question whether it was allowable at any time to depart from truth johnson the general rule is that truth should never be violated because it is of the utmost importance to the comfort of life that we should have a full security by mutual faith and occasional inconveniences should be willingly suffered that we may preserve it there must however be some exceptions if for instance a murderer should ask you which way a man is gone you may tell him what is not true because you are under a previous obligation not to betray a man to a murderer footnote cardinal newman remarks on this as to johnson's case of a murderer asking you which way a man had gone i should have anticipated that had such a difficulty happened to him his first act would have been to knock the man down and call out for the police and next if he was worsted in the conflict he would not have given the ruffian the information he asked at whatever risk to himself i think he would have let himself be killed first i do not think that he would have told a lie End of footnote. Boswell, supposing the person who wrote Unius were asked whether he was the author, might he deny it? Johnson, I don't know what to say to this. If you were sure that he wrote Unius, would you, if he denied it, think as well of him afterwards? Yet it may be urged that what a man has no right to ask, you may refuse to communicate. And there is no other effectual mode of preserving a secret, and an important secret, the discovery of which may be very hurtful to you, but a flat denial. For if you are silent, or hesitate, or evade, it will be held equivalent to a confession. But stay, sir, there is another case. Supposing the author had told me confidentially that he had written Junius, and I were asked if he had, I should hold myself at liberty to deny it as being under a previous promise, express or implied, to conceal it. Now what I ought to do for the author, may I not do for myself? But I deny the lawfulness of telling a lie to a sick man for fear of alarming him, 
you have no business with consequences you are to tell the truth besides you are not sure what effect your telling him that he is in danger may have it may bring his distemper to a crisis and that may cure him of all lying i have the greatest abhorrence of this because i believe it has been frequently practised on myself i cannot help thinking that there is much weight in the opinion of those who have held that truth as an eternal and immutable principle ought upon no account whatever to be violated from supposed previous or superior obligations of which every man being to judge for himself there is great danger that we too often from partial motives persuade ourselves that they exist and probably whatever extraordinary instances may sometimes occur where some evil may be prevented by violating this noble principle it will be found that human happiness would upon the whole be more perfect were truth universally preserved in the notes to the dunciad we find the following verses addressed to pope while malice pope denies thy page its own celestial fire while critics and while bards in rage admiring won't admire while wayward pens thy worth assail and envious tongues decry these times though many a friend bewail these times bewail not i but when the world's loud praise is thine and spleen no more shall blame when with thy homer thou shalt shine in one established fame when none shall rail and every lay devote a wreath to thee that day for come it will that day shall i lament to see it is surely not a little remarkable that they should appear without a name miss seward knowing dr johnson's almost universal and minute literary information signified a desire that i should ask him who was the author he was prompt with his answer no sir they were written by one lewis who was either undermaster or an usher of westminster school and published a miscellany in which grongar hill first came out footnote lewis's verses addressed to pope were first published in a collection of pieces on occasion of the dunciad seventeen thirty two they do not appear in lewis's own miscellany printed in seventeen twenty six hill was first printed in savages miscellanies as an ode and was reprinted in the same year in lewis's miscellany in the form it now bears End of footnote. johnson praised them highly and repeated them with a noble animation in the twelfth line instead of one established fame he repeated one unclouded flame which he thought was the reading in former editions but i believe was a flash of his own genius it is much more poetical than the other on monday june the fourteenth and tuesday the fifteenth 
dr johnson and i dined on one of them i forget which with mr mickle translator of the lusiad at wheatley a very pretty country place a few miles from oxford and on the other with dr wetherell master of university college from dr wetherell's he went to visit mr sackville parker the bookseller and when he returned to us gave the following account of his visit saying i have been to see my old friend sack parker i find he has married his maid he has done right she had lived with him many years in great confidence and they had mingled minds i do not think he could have found any wife that would have made him so happy the woman was very attentive and civil to me she pressed me to fix a day for dining with them and to say what i liked and she would be sure to get it for me poor sack he is very ill indeed we parted as never to meet again it has quite broke me down this pathetic narrative was strangely diversified with the grave and earnest defence of a man's having married his maid i could not but feel it as in some degree ludicrous in the morning of tuesday june the fifteenth while we sat at dr adams's we talked of a printed letter from the reverend herbert croft to a young gentleman who had been his pupil in which he advised him to read to the end of whatever books he should begin to read johnson this is surely a strange advice you may as well resolve that whatever men you happen to get acquainted with you are to keep to them for life a book may be good for nothing or there may be only one thing in it worth knowing are we to read it all through these voyages pointing to the three large volumes of voyages to the south sea which were just come out who will read them through a man had better work his way before the mast than read them through they will be eaten by rats and mice before they are read through there can be little entertainment in such books one set of savages is like another boswell i do not think the people of Haiti can be reckoned savages Johnson, don't cant in defence of savages boswell they have the art of navigation Johnson, a dog or a cat can swim boswell they carve very ingeniously johnson a cat can scratch and a child with a nail can scratch i perceived this was none of the mollia tempora fundi so desisted end of section thirty five